Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy. How you guys doing? Um, I'm going to ask my brother Joey to go ahead and come up here really quickly, if you don't mind, brother. Um, What's up, y'all? It's so good to see y'all. Man, I am so excited every single time I get an opportunity to preach the word. And here's what I believe. I believe that every time we open up the word of God, God meets us there. God has something for us this morning. I am expectant because at Mercy, we expect God to change a life today. So I have three objectives for us today. I want to tell a story. I want to show how that story expounds upon the greater story of God. And then I want to see how I want to help us to reveal how God distinguishes those who trust the story from those who need to. So if y'all are good with that, I'm going to have my brother Joey read the word of God for us. Our scripture today comes from Acts 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." Continuing in chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. So the year was 1815. Napoleon the Great was on his comeback tour of sorts. 
He had, the year before, suffered a devastating loss that had led him to be exiled from France. But now, he had returned to the country and galvanized the people of France, and he was ready for a counterattack. Surrounding the French border was a coalition of countries that included the British, the Netherlands, Brunswick, and Prussia. Their aim was simple. They wanted to end the 15-year aggression that Napoleon had been making on the rest of Europe. Their plan? Invade France and take the throne. Victory meant an end to the Napoleonic Wars, but defeat meant a continuation of this conquering tyrant. The stakes were high. And Napoleon, in Napoleon fashion, made the first move. He attacked and pushed back the Prussian army. They retreated. And now all that stood in the way of another Napoleon victory was General Wellington and his platoon. The battle was fierce. It raged on for hour after hour after hour. And when the smoke cleared, a correspondence was sent to Britain with two simple words. Wellington defeated. The entire country of Britain was thrown into an upheaval. There was immediate disastrous financial panic. Looting, rioting, and hopelessness all moved in on the country like a dark cloud. This loss meant more suffering. It meant more death. And there was this insecurity about the people's beloved country. But after hours of agony, a glimmer, a glimmer of hope began to trickle through the people's darkness. What we saw was that the transgression that had been sent had been interrupted by the poor weather. There was more to the story. And as they read the other half of the communication, hope began to rise in the chest of the people. The new message was exciting, and it was read aloud with joy. The transmission read, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Sorrow turned into laughter. Depression turned to joy. Defeat to victory with just a few words. The end of the story made all the difference. So here's my point to us. God has written us a similar story. And similar to the correspondence, the story that God has written has come in two parts. And the potential tragedy of today is that most of the world has only heard the first part of God's story. Many have received this incomplete message from God. Today, in Acts 18 and 19, we will read about 13 men who had only received part one of the story. They only got the first half of the correspondence. And what we will see is that God uses people just like you and just like me to proclaim the finished story of God. I want to tag our message today. Keep reading. There's more to the story. Before I do that, let me pray. Jesus, my prayer is simple. Oh God, would you be among us here and now? Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord? 
And would you, oh God, help us to see the beauty of the gospel. And would you fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 24 starts in the middle of a story. What we see is that God is on the move and he is using all types of people to accomplish his purpose. At the beginning of this chapter, we meet the missionary Paul, who has just left Athens and has gone to Corinth. And who does God have waiting for him there? None other than the couple that we met last week, the couple that we learned who was willing to leverage every opportunity for the gospel. There waiting for Paul was Aquila and Priscilla. And what we see is how the power of God's mission has the ability to bond strangers into family. They were co-workers building tents together, co-laborers building the church, and they were friends building a life together. This was a tightly knit group. So when the time came for them to leave the city, they went together, naturally. So this trio leaves Corinth and ends up in Ephesus. And here, God calls them to share a gospel goodbye. Very similar to the one that we are sharing today. But here's our hope, brothers and sisters. God doesn't waste the tears that fall in our pursuit of God's kingdom. What we see here in the text is that God's plan to advance the gospel, to advance his mission, and to proclaim the finished story sometimes require us to say goodbye to the ones we love. But here's what we believe here at Mercy, that as we send God's people to all people, we believe that the city of Charlotte will know more of the goodness of Jesus, more of the faithfulness of the Father, and more of the power of the Spirit because we allow people to go and follow the things that God is calling them to do. And so even though Paul leaves, we see that Priscilla and Aquila stay, planning to go, but willing to stay. We know that Priscilla and Aquila were willing to go. They had planned to go. This is their third city in chapter 18 alone. But yet, when God calls them to stay, they do so faithfully. And what we see is that this leads to the salvation of those who would have exponential impact in the advancement of God's kingdom. They spread the finished story of the gospel all over the world. So let's dive into the story and see how this happens. Verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. A Jew named Apollos. This is the first mention of the young theologian. The text says that he was a native of Alexandria. And what do we know about Alexandria? Well, we know that Alexandria was a perfect mix of culture and religion. In other words, Apollos was from the place you wanted to be from if you were a preacher. Alexandria, it was known for its museums, libraries, and schools. It boasted a large population of both Jewish scholars and Greek philosophers. And so basically, Alexandria was home of the best and the brightest. And from the ranks of Alexandria had risen an impressive, scholarly, learned man. He was eloquent, competent in the scriptures, fervent in spirit, 
and he taught accurately. And yet, yet, there was something missing. So let's, let's go through our pastoral checklist and see if we can find it, right? Like, was he compelling? The man could preach. Did he know the Bible? Powerful in the scriptures. Was he passionate? Well, only passionate enough to travel 1,700 miles from Alexandria to Ephesus without plane, train, or car. Was what he said true? Scripture says that he was precise. But there's this little appendage tacked on to the end of all his accolades. Apollos only knew the baptism of John. Or in other words, he only knew half the story. He needed more information. And so, like, at this point in the story, we're thinking, if only there was someone there to help him. If only God had left someone there. If only there was someone willing to stay. And what do we see in verse 26? He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Praise God. This is why they stayed. God had them on mission right where they were. They were serving in the context of their local church. They worked a nine to five like many of you. But their normal Christian life had an immense gospel impact. Our Christian paradigm has to shift. It cannot be this all or nothing Christianity. Like only those who are chosen to do ministry, you know, those who go to the nations like Sadie or stand on stages, only those people will have gospel impact. But the text is clear. It points to something otherwise. It is not Paul or nothing. You can be Aquila and Priscilla right here, right now. Faithful members of a local body taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like, brothers and sisters, do we really want to see a gospel awakening happen in our city? Then I have a secret for you. It won't be because of Pastor Spence's faithfulness alone. It won't be because of me or Pastor Scott or anyone else on staff. It will be because we have all believed and value God's call for us to go with the gospel right here, right now. God had a plan and a purpose for keeping Aquila and Priscilla right where they were. And I have a secret for you. He has a plan and a purpose for you here in Charlotte. Aquila and Priscilla, they're just like, they're great ministry models for us. They're they're so godly. Like, look at how they handle Apollos right here in verse 26. Said they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Can you see them? This older couple looking upon this young man with compassion. This young man who knew the scriptures, exegeted them clearly with fervency and eloquence and courage. But they didn't see him as someone who needed to be shut up or shut down. They didn't denounce him publicly, drag his name through the mud, put his business in the streets. Even though, check me out, even though he only knew half the story. They brought him in, likely shared a meal. Maybe they washed his feet. And not only did they inform him of the greater hope that comes with the rest of the correspondence, but they lived it out right before his very eyes. See the beauty of this picture. 
how humility is met with humility. This educated, accomplished theologian and philosopher set at the feet of tent makers. This is the upside down that God, kingdom that God is looking to create amongst his people. And at their feet, Apollos gained something that was far greater than knowledge. At the feet of the poor, he found life. The second half of the message changes everything. His life was never the same. And Apollos no longer proclaimed the partial account of John's baptism. Let's look at verse 27. It says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila's impact on Apollos equips him with the whole story. It equips him with the gospel. And with the gospel, the text says that he was great help. And here we see how the obedience of a few impacts many. We see how our obedience generates great gospel impact. Apollos' ministry would be on par with Paul's. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. How is God calling you to be faithful? How might he want to use you here and now in the city of Charlotte? Y'all, we are a part of a church with a God-sized vision, a gospel awakening in this city. And God can do it, but we have to be honest with ourselves right? Like a big prayer with little action is really only evidence of little faith. God was doing a great work in the region, and he was inviting everyone, and I mean everyone, to get in on it. You go to the next chapter, and we see God doing the exact same thing. Verse 1, it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And so as Apollos is traveling, get this picture now, Apollos is traveling from Ephesus to Corinth, and Paul is passing from Corinth to Ephesus. And in the passing of these two men, God is bringing the second half of his story to the world. Paul returns to Ephesus, and he's going to meet some disciples. And as he's getting to know these guys, he becomes a little concerned. He feels that something's just not quite right with these guys. There's something a little off about these dudes. So in verse 2, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Such an important question. Such an important question. And this basically was Paul's version of a G-check. Okay, my bad. Wrong crowd. Wrong crowd. Okay, so let me help you out with this. So pretend, so pretend like you are in a group of people, right? And you guys all simultaneously at the same time recognize that y'all all have the exact same favorite artist, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, you love Justin Bieber too? Yes, girl, right? And so then like all of a sudden y'all all bursted out in the song. Y'all talking about some baby, 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 oh, it's like baby. And out of the corner of your eye, you see somebody mumbling. Like they don't actually know the words and you're offended because they said they was a fan. And so you beat bopping, but you're like, wait a minute, this person is, 
Not who they say they are. So you stop the whole thing. You stop the whole thing. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What year did Biebs drop My World 2.0? <laughs> and you know, in that moment, if they stutter, they're not who they say they are. <laughs> All right? So this is what's happening right here. Like Paul is looking at these guys and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What year did Jesus drop the Holy Spirit? And they stutter, yo, they froze. They're like, we, we, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul knew in that moment, these guys weren't who they said they were because you cannot know Jesus and not know the Holy Spirit. Woo, I can't preach it yet. So Paul, uh, Paul is genuinely perplexed. We're going to get there, I promise. Paul is genuinely perplexed right here. He asked the disciples, like, how have you never heard of the Holy Spirit? Like, what were you even baptized into? And here it comes again. Y'all ready? Into the baptism of John. So if we take a step back for a moment, what we see are two stories that hinge on one issue. Namely, people professing Jesus while only knowing the baptism of John. Professing Jesus, but only knowing half the story. I have one desire for today, and that is that we, as a people of God, would live in light of the full reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John and his disciples only had half the story. The story that John and his disciples had was essentially Wellington defeated. Let me build a bridge for us. Let me help us get there, because at this point, you should be asking questions like, who is this John dude? And what is this half story that you keep talking about? So let's answer the first one. Who is John? John, known as John the Baptist, is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This old barren couple should give us hero of the faith vibes. If you know the Old Testament, then you should be thinking Abraham and Sarah were barren. Oh, and, and Jacob and Rachel were barren. So what is God doing here? And as we are introduced to the New Testament, as we begin to taste the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, at the beginning of every gospel, we meet John the Baptist. Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, John chapter 1, and Matthew chapter 3. And from this old couple's barrenness comes, according to Jesus, the greatest man ever born of woman. At his birth, his father is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he proclaims, John will be called a prophet of the Most High, for he will go before the Lord and prepare his way. So who is John? John is the greatest prophet who ever lived. He is the cliffhanger to the proverbial climax of Scripture. He is the conclusion of the Old Testament prophets. Consider with me how John, like Moses, called the people to keep the law. Or how he, like Ezekiel, called the people to repent. Or like Isaiah, he paints this beautiful portrait of the coming Messiah saying that he who comes after me is greater than I am. And I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. See, what we see in John is the culmination of all the Old Testament prophets laser-focused into one man's baptism. John's ministry is powerful. It is God-ordained. But John, even John, didn't have the full story. 
He died before its conclusion. And so did every prophet that came before him. Even though they longed, they longed to look into the mystery. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1. He says that even the angels and the prophets longed to look into the mystery of God's salvation. But they died before its conclusion. And here's what I want to communicate to us, brothers and sisters. I want to communicate that God has written us a story. It's right here. And its conclusion is not with John. Everything that John asserted is necessary and true. God had placed, has placed inside of us this moral compass that demands that we do right, know right from wrong and keep it. That's true. And God has called us to repent when we break this law. That is also true. But brothers and sisters, that is not the end of the story. God has more to say to us. He wasn't finished. And my call to us today is not to put a period where God intended a comma. Keep reading. There's more to the story. Tell me if this sounds familiar. This is part one of the law. This is part one of the story. Keep the law. Don't steal. Don't cuss. Have no other gods. Love me, God says. And if you do that, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that sounds like a really, really good message, doesn't it? That's fair enough. It's simple. It's straightforward. But for some reason, we really struggle with that. Right? We really struggle with that simple proposition from God because deep, deep down, here's the truth about us. We love other things more than we love God. And this reality leaves us with the law that condemns. The first part of the story begins to sound like, try harder, do better, stop falling and failing. Why are you still here? And if this is the track record that is played repeatedly in your head this week, if it is, let me say, maybe you are listening to and reading and clinging to only the first half of the message. And it's not just you. All of humanity has heard and is clinging to the same incomplete message that John and his disciples had. It's proclaimed from the pulpits and it is heralded on the gram. Keep the law, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. Be a good person. But we're, we're not good people, really, are we? Like Paul says, we have all fallen short because God is perfect. And because God is holy, and because God is just, and because these things are true, who here among us would stand before this perfect, holy, just God and be proud of our actions and thoughts and motives? If we get right down to it, the message of keep the law, be good, is not really good news to us. Because it can't save us. That's the reality. And if I'm honest, my sin and my brokenness and my failure turned the first half of that communication of keep the law into the bad news that Britain received that day, except for the message wasn't just for Wellington. It was about me. The refrain that I have heard over and over and over again in my head this week is Joseph defeated.
Brothers and sisters, I desperately need to hear the conclusion of this story. And so do you. What is our saving grace in these moments of condemnation? It's part two. For even though we couldn't keep the law, y'all, about 2,000 years ago, this man who was born of a virgin, he was the very image of the invisible God, fully God and fully man, he was the climax and the conclusion of God's story. The climax and the conclusion of God's correspondence to us. And get this, he had a baptism that was better than John's. In verse 4, Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So here's the good news. There is something that comes after the comma, and that something is Jesus. And why is that good news? Because Jesus offers a better baptism. He offers a baptism that saves. They asked John, are you the Messiah? And his response every time was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just baptized with water. But the one who comes after, he has real power. And he, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does Paul ask these men about the Spirit? Like, why? Did you guys receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when you believed? He asked because water has no power to save. But Jesus, the coming of Jesus changes everything. We see it in the text. Look at verse 5. On hearing this, that Jesus was the Messiah, we're in chapter 19. I know I jumped quick. On hearing this, they were baptized in to the name of the Lord Jesus. And watch what happens. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. The distinction between John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus may be the most important issue that faces the church today. Here is where we tackle objective number three. What makes a Christian a Christian? What is the greatest evidence that someone has heard the final and conclusive story of God? It's not whether they attempt to be good. It's not their Bible knowledge. It's not even whether they intellectually believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. Those things are all important, but they are not the primary distinguisher. Consider with me for a moment the origins of Christianity. We go all the way back to our first series, our first volume in the You Are Sent series. In Acts 1, Jesus reiterates the promise of John saying, John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Spirit here in just a few days. And in Acts 2, the promised is realized. God pours out his Spirit on 120 faithful believers and the behavior changed so drastically that the people around them were like, yo, they drunk. And Peter stands up and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who had only previously heard part one of God's story. 
This is the same Peter, by the way, who just weeks prior had denied Jesus and gone into hiding. What was the distinction between him then and him now? Water versus the Spirit. Peter proclaimed the gospel, and they asked a very similar question to Peter to the one they asked John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. They asked him, what must we do? How can we experience salvation? And y'all know they gave two different answers, right? And Peter's proclamation, we get a different answer than John in Luke 3. Because something had changed. In the time between John's baptism and Peter's proclamation, God had finished the story. The partial message we had received from God was not good news. Keep the law. You are broken. You are sinful. You are weak. But oh, brothers and sisters, as the fog cleared, the rest of the message came through. And everything changed because God did not put a period after those statements, but a comma. It was keep the law, comma, by the power of my spirit. It was you are broken, comma, but I love broken things. It was you are sinful, comma, but blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And it is you are weak, comma, but my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness through my spirit. John said repent, and Peter said repent, but that's about where they differ. When they asked Peter, what shall we do? He said repent, be baptized into the name of Jesus, receive the forgiveness of your sin, and receive the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the distinction. Let me ask you, what are you trusting in for your salvation the water of John or the spirit of Jesus? God promises his spirit when we believe. He promises us a helper who will teach and remind us of the words of Jesus. He promises strength in our weakness for communicating and communing with our creator. He's endowed us with love, joy, peace, and patience. He creates in us kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He provides for us freedom and hope. And he says that all of this is just a down payment of what is to come in eternity for us. These, brothers and sisters, are the promises of God. So let hope well up in your soul as you hear the rest of the story. The law that you couldn't keep, God says, I will give you a new heart. In a new spirit, I will put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To that condemnation that you've been feeling, he says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So because of this distinction, I have one simple question for you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Has God caused you to love him? Like, genuinely, is there evidence that God has unzipped you and climbed inside? 
Is there evidence that your soul cries out to your creator, Abba, Father? What we see here in the text is that all who believe in the name of Jesus receive the Spirit. There's an important lesson for us to learn here from these 13 men. These 13 men who only had a part of the story. And that's this. Your familiarity with Jesus can't save you. You can creep right up on salvation. You can know all about God. You can be personally baptized by the greatest prophet to ever live. Your mama and them could have dragged you to church every Sunday. You can be as religious as you want to be. But if there is no evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, I need you to listen to me here now closer than you've ever listened to anything in your entire life. The Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. We were dead in our sin, rebels of God, by nature children of wrath. Our law-keeping accounted to nothing, and we were hopeless and condemned. What on earth could we do other than spiral downward toward an encounter with a holy God in a consuming fire? And mankind has thought up all kinds of ways to solve the problem of our guilt. Keep the law, reject the law, oppose moral absolutes, deny the existence of God. But none of these, none of our efforts could nullify the fact that we would all stand before a holy God, guilty and condemned. Every man-made plan, no matter how intentional or thoughtful or well-crafted, failed. But here's our hope, that the wisdom of God is great. The Bible says that his foolishness is greater than our greatest wisdom. Be overwhelmed at the reality that God would intervene on our behalf, that he would step into our hopeless state. Hear part two of the message with fresh ears, brothers and sisters. God's solution to our problem was to step into a world that he knew would reject and hate him. His solution to our problem was to take on flesh for the sole purpose of having it ripped from his back. God in his justice punished sin by taking Jesus, the only one who ever kept the law, and driving nails through his wrist and spikes through his feet. Also, that we would know the depths of God's love for us. And that we would know the lengths he would take to reconcile a people to himself. Jesus took the punishment for our sin on himself and he died a horrific death on the cross. Jesus defeated. But how many of y'all know the story doesn't end that way? Brothers and sisters, early on a Sunday morning, God sent the Holy Spirit to go and get his son up out of the grave. And the text says, Scripture tells us that that very same power lives in us. We have victory through the power of the Spirit because on the cross, Jesus defeated, comma, sin, the devil, and the grave. Praise God. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or better yet, let me ask you this question. 
Have you believed? If not, I would love to extend an invitation on behalf of God. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that water, brothers and sisters, is the spirit. Are you thirsty? Are you tired? Are you needy? Jesus says, come drink freely now. So let me pray. Jesus, your word is good. (laughs) And oh, how desperately we need you. And I don't know if there are people here who need your spirit. But God, I pray that you would move in power. I would pray that you would use these feeble words to call people to repentance. That you would use these feeble words to call people to believe. And that you would fill people with the power of your spirit. Open our eyes, oh God, to the beauty of your gospel. We love you. We trust you. We need you. And we pray all this in the power of your perfect name. Jesus, amen.